This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today, in my interview with Dr. James Cantrez, we discuss his new book entitled Blackening Britain, Caribbean Radicalism from Windrush to Decolonization. The title is currently out with Roman and and Littlefield Publishers as a part of the Global Critical Caribbean Thought series. At the moment, Dr. Cantrez is an assistant professor in the Department of Africana and Puerto Rican Latino Studies at Hunter College. Dr. Cantrez, welcome to the show and congratulations on your new book. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Well, we can't wait to discuss this with you. So let's begin with having you tell us about yourself and your journey to the study and practices of history and Black studies. Sure. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be with you uh, today, Amanda. So thank you again. I can say that I grew up in Brooklyn, in, in, in New York, and I learned a lot about how space and identity from a young age were kind of unbound by where you were particularly at a given time. And what I mean by that is that everyone was really from somewhere, right? I grew up in a community where folks had family from the American South. People had family across Caribbean societies. They had family in Canada, in Britain, and we all were kind of making sense of who we were in that unique kind of environment. And it allowed me to think about different forms of connectivity, the bonds that you have with your friends, with the families of your parents' friends, right? The dynamic realities of going to school and hearing different accents, right? Whether they were slightly tinged with the South or a kind of Jamaican lilt, right? Or hearing Haitian Creole from your friends and their parents and eating everyone's foods and all of that really gave me a sense of what diaspora was from when I was small. And I think so much of that inspired my own path into trying to think further about exactly what made people go to different places, what they did when they arrived, and how they remain connected to multiple kinds of roots, right? African roots, Caribbean roots. African-American Southern roots, right? In spaces like Flatbush, Canarsie. These are neighborhoods in Brooklyn, by the way. Bedford-Stuyvesant, right? Flatlands, Crown Heights. 
And I was always interested in sort of thinking about the stories that people told. That was probably why I wanted to be at least in a conversation with historians, right? Thinking about narrative and the tales of this place, the tales of that place, but also recognizing that combining those in the unique space that we were in, even as young people, we were creating a, a kind of understanding of ourselves in our own way as well. Right. Right, for sure. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. Now I have to, I have to like rethink my own childhood. I grew up in the Bronx um, okay. until, until, until I moved to Chicago. Um, but yeah, thinking about all of, all of that was there also. Um, just, just, you know, off the four train. Um, so, so yeah. Um, how did you, so tell us about how you came to write uh, Blackening Britain. I see this book, um, you know, I have the book and it, it sits, um, it sits on my shelf next to uh, Dr. Kanetta Hammond Perry's book, um, as well as next to Elizabeth Williams book, sure, um, sure. just all on, on black, um, black politics in Britain. But I think that this book, you know, it, it uh, fulfills, it fills an important gap in the literature. So tell us how you came to write it. Sure, sure. So I was in I I was an undergraduate, um, at Vassar College in, in upstate New York, and I had the privilege of studying under uh, the tutelage of um, Professor Quincy Mills, who was there at the time. And he uh, advised me as an undergraduate to think really seriously about the potential of investigating diaspora, the African diaspora, in ways that would be innovative and potentially in geographies that perhaps were slightly understudied at the time, right? So as an undergrad, I began to just even consider these questions of, oh, what about that friend who didn't go to Grenada every summer, but went to London every summer? What was that about, right? And what about the other friend who sometimes goes to Toronto, but also goes to see family in Birmingham or Liverpool, right? And I, I started to think not only that I was trying to do the work of recovering the stories of people I knew, because that's not what I ultimately did at all, but these questions just appeared for me, right? To think beyond the United States, firstly, right? As as the case study. Then it started, then I started to look and think about different kinds of political structures and formations and thinking about colonialism, right? The British Imperium, right? Thinking about movement between different islands in the Caribbean, right? And that allowed me to then look more seriously at trying to understand what was happening among these folks from all around the Caribbean, right? From around the Anglophone African world as well. And to think about what their relationship was, not only to the idea of Britain or to the English language, right? Because that is what the source material was written in, but literally what was their relationship to the place? So from that stage, then I went to graduate school and that's what I was thinking about. So I was, then I wrote a 
dissertation about kind of patterns of identification among um, West Indian migrants and arrivals in Britain after World War II. And I was supported by people like the professors Michelle Mitchell and Michael Gomez and Ada Ferrer, right? Sukhdev Sandhu, uh, thinking about Jennifer Morgan and Herman Bennett, a whole host of figures who were allowing me to think across time and space and to really problematize the idea of the Black Atlantic in a way that was temporally specific, right? Which was to say, yes, we need to think differently about racial formation in different parts of the British Empire. We need to think differently about the corresponding cultural expression of Caribbean people in different locations, right? And we need to think and understand exactly what it is that these people had to say about themselves and the way in which they produced that kind of knowledge. Right. And, and then I carried on. And then I wrote a book after finishing. Right? <laughs> then, then I was sort of putting together all of these ideas by looking across the 20th century, what for me looked like micro generations, right, that had been studied in important ways, the pre-war years, the interwar years, right? The immediate kind of post-arrival of the Windrush in 1948 being very important. Then later, 1962, Commonwealth Immigrants Act with its restrictive policies and what happened after that. All of these had been studied in these ways. And I wanted to just connect them in a clearer manner. And what I realized in writing this book was that there was a through line that was possible. And that through line was uh, an assessment of the patterns, the, the tenor and the content of Caribbean radicalism throughout these micro eras. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and we definitely, we see, we see that um, in the book, uh, the way that uh, just kind of the range that you have, the temporal range that you have and the ways that you're uh, jumping around from, you know, the islands and then back to Britain and examining the content of politics um, in each locale and kind of seeing what it all adds up to. I mean, it just, it comes across so strongly in the book. Um, Thank you. So with that, the source base of this book is vast um, and transnational or transregional, um, moving from UK archives to ones in the United States and Trinidad. Um, what can you tell us about the experience of doing the research and writing for this book? And in what ways did these archival roots that you embarked on help you map this post-national Black world that kind of comes to life in the text? Sure. Yeah. I, I well, doing doing research required going to London a lot, right? Mm -hmm. It it also required going uptown a few times, right? And to Trinidad, and in moving to these different spaces, you start to understand more clearly the literal routes that the people that you're writing and thinking about also had earlier embarked on. Right. So it was sort of this wonderful experience. I can just let me do two things. One, I want to give one anecdote. And then I would just want to say a couple things about some of the different kinds of sources in different archives, if that's OK. Sure. So I so I was in Trinidad at the uh, libraries at the UE in St. Augustine. Right. Alma James Library, Jordan Library. And um, something that I really wanted to do was to 
retrace the steps of CLR James because I have all of these romantic ideals, right? This is not to say that I do not view James with any absent of any critique, right? But we're talking about a, an incredibly important figure right? in the history of Trinidad and Tobago, in the history of radicalism in the Caribbean, in carving out a kind of very far left space, right, that also took into account the realities of racialization, right, across Black Atlantic societies, who provided a narrative and a, uh, a hagiography, right, of Toussaint to be looked at, right, in a way that was unthinkable prior, probably, in the uh, European Academy, right, in terms of the Haitian Revolution, right? So I said, I'm in St. Augustine, and CLR James was born and raised in Tunapuna, which is not far from here, and I know that he is resting here. So one day after the archive, we walked down the road, right? And we're talking July in Trinidad, so you might imagine what the weather was like, right? And then I did manage to arrive to right his gravesite, and it sort of just provided this perspective for me, right? That from his life, going to London, going across Europe, spending time in Moscow, spending time in the United States, spending time in on the African continent, imagining him moving through these spaces, Paris, Hamburg, and the like, right? Then to come basically to his original and final space felt like for me, I could understand something about the narrative that I was looking to articulate, right? That the Caribbean presence, right? In this work that is about people going to Britain never really goes away. It was very important for me to be able to make claims about how we can understand and see Caribbean formations, political, social, cultural formations and recognize them for their resilience in the face of the realities of metropolitan British racialization. So by going back to the place where this man was born and then where he finally rests sort of allowed me to think about how to structure some of the language of the book in a really prominent way. Yeah. And, and, being, and being in St. Augustine, I, I had the opportunity then to look at a number of his files at the library there, right, at the Special Collections of UE, along with folks like Eric Williams and Sam Selvon, the libraries in London and the archives in London provided different kinds of uh, records for me. The British Library, of course, has all of these monographs and manuscripts published and unpublished newspaper records that had tremendous amounts of info into the kind of popular representations and understandings of the migrant from the perspective of the British, right? But there were also these archives, the London Metropolitan Archives has a wonderful collection that's actually related to a Guyanese couple, Jessica and Eric Huntley, right, who were members of the People's Progressive Party and Marxist organizers, and they had lived in uh, London since the mid 
1950s. They're incredible records uh, related to them and their interactions, engagements, and close, basically familial relationship with Walter Rodney, right? The Black Cultural Archives in Brixton and South London has all of this uh, material. Some of it is ephemera, but some of it is Black-owned and operated newsletters and periodicals and publications that gave you some sense of the substance, right, of the kind of creative and news political-oriented um, attitudes of people, certainly in the 1950s and 60s, living in places like Brixton, for instance, but also in a number of other Black enclaves in the capital, right? The George Padmore Library also was incredibly important because it had a lot of the files related to the Caribbean artist movement, right? And not just the newsletter, which was this incredible, beautiful document, right? But also the correspondences among members of the Caribbean artist movement, right? So we're talking about people like Kamal Brathwaite, John LaRose, who was a publisher, right? Um, George Padmore, as well as Andrew Salky, the Jamaican uh, journalist and radical. The letters and the way in which they were describing one another, thinking about one another, and developing a sense of the potentiality that art had as a revolutionary political practice started to show to me as a researcher that something different was happening by the time we're talking about 1966, 1967, right? Which is the when this group emerges, right? So that's just sort of a, a that's just a taste of some of the stuff that I was looking at and thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just uh, so uh, it's like it's coming into a, another type of learning. But um, just when you're recounting going to CLR James's resting uh, site, just makes me think. Um, of how, yeah, just how like physical spaces become an archive of themselves. Um, and they create these opportunities for uh, researchers or scholars to think um, and just just see what comes to you in the space. Like what type of analysis can you like grow out of visiting this, this site um, is just, yeah, something that I'll have to continue to sit with, but I think it's fascinating and I'm, I'm glad it uh, has, uh, made its way into the way that you're thinking about this work. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so one of the things that I thought was really refreshing about this book is that unlike other books about Black politics in Britain, the book's first chapter, the opening chapter, starts on the small islands and it introduces readers to the possibilities of Caribbean Federation, the politics of independence um, in this period before Windrush. So can you tell us about how these debates on the small islands about race, belonging, and political economy actually foreground um, the politics of Caribbean migration that we see later? Sure, sure. Well, a, a major, thank you for that question. A, a major issue that I get at in the book is this question or the problematic of belonging and unbelonging, right? So the characters, the people, the personalities that I'm thinking about from the Caribbean and Africa are constantly in this strange space in the context of Britain 
where they might belong in legal and official manners, but are not made to feel or experience right, a social existence of belonging. So what I wanted to do was to understand better, right? What I wanted to consider was a narrative that would be both more accurate and more nuanced, right? And that required looking more closely at where people were from as well, right? So British hegemony meant that British society, culture, and civilization, and power, right, were all recognized in the Caribbean. That's true. But what I wanted to show was that this was not the only lens through which people might understand their lives. And in fact, what we see is that life within many of the islands was in rather tremendous ways quite estranged from the metropolitan realities, right? That in the sort of hinterlands, right, or in the rural areas of an island like Jamaica or Barbados, life is substantially different than in Kingston or Bridgetown. Right. And in turn, those places are quite different from London, Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, right? Or Cardiff. Mm-hmm. So it was in this want, right? This want for better conditions, for life possibilities, right? That actually inspired so many people to move. There is a practical purpose for this. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I did want to show that there was a degree of developing political culture that even the British might have recognized as at least semi-sophisticated, right? They they certainly were not um, always impressed or welcoming of the kind of nascent political movements that were happening across Caribbean and African societies. And throughout the late period of the 19th century into the early 20th century, we see that there are a lot of efforts from British colonial legislative measures, right, that actually prohibit public mobilizations and even trade union membership or formation, right? But we do see that there are some nascent movements um, before World War II, right, that involve or center the possibility of sovereignty, the possibility of independence, Right. And mobilized a lot of working class people. Right. So then in particular, you think of the Jamaican cousins, Norman Manley and Alexander Bustamante. Right. Who had long been organizing. Right. And even in their own family were quite different. Right. Because Manley was here as a sort of Rhodes Scholar, whereas Bustamante was of was sort of the working class representative. Right. Right. But they allow us to think about the debates that were happening among people within the Caribbean with relation to visions that they may have had for their own political futures that in some cases followed a kind of British teleology about what uh, Westminster style decolonization would look like. But in other ways, we see that there is some resistance to that. Right? So I just wanted to show that these are dynamic spaces, right, that absolutely are impacted and dominated by the British, but also have their own unique political cultures that deserve more reckoning with. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so 
with that, we kind of see in the next chapter um, that you follow Afro-diasporic thinkers who are kind of creating conceptual spaces um, to think about or theorize the experience of working class migrants in Britain, um, but also just um, just politics of belonging. So um, you examine uh, kind of like the inroads of CLR James, George Padmore, Eric Williams, um, the political work of anti-colonial leagues, the League of Colored Peoples, the um, the 1945 Pan-African Congress. Can you tell us more about these radical undercurrents that are actually happening in Britain um, and how they um, actually encounter uh, the political work of Black Britain's newspaper pioneer, who I'm so fast, I'm personally just really fascinated by him, um, Dominican-born Edward Scobie? Sure. Yeah. So, so what distinguishes these intellectuals is not only their movement to Britain, right? But it's almost a, a peripatetic existence, right? These are people who have gone from Trinidad to Britain to Hungary to Moscow to France to the United States to Nigeria, right? They, they're moving across spaces in ways that are undoubtedly informing their politics and the potential ways that they could understand radical change, right? So it's not just Britain or nothing. Right. They were all they have been involved. Right. I'm thinking about James and Williams in particular, who both spent time in the United States. Right. Moving back and forth across the Atlantic, aware of changing relationships of power. Right. And eager to refute what seems like an unquestionable hegemonic status quo. Right. So I think that these kinds of experiences allow for a different and more nuanced potential vision, right, for radicalism that is not merely adhering to the kind of unspoken norms of British political debates, right? So moving through these spaces gives someone like James Williams and Padmore, right, sort of studying the Russian Revolution, right, is giving someone not only different answers, right, to problems of British political culture, but is actually requiring then that they ask different sorts of questions to begin with, right? That they do not assume, right, the next stage of uh, capitalist expansion and development being a good thing, for instance, right? That, that they do not assume, right, that membership in a trade union that is at the same time exploiting the labor of labor uh, exploiting the labor of workers in a west african port is a good thing right they, they begin to say well there is a structural bone deep issue in terms of how we might understand not only ourselves but now a kind of broader and more inclusive and experiential because they have gone to these places sense of what their african or diasporic identity might be and in 1945, and we're talking about this coming through even further in the Pan-African Congress, right? Because this is a broader and more Afrocentric sort of Congress than some of, some of the earlier iterations, right? It, it's just the possibility for people to arrive is, is, is also um, greater, right? You have Kwame Nkrumah, Jomo Kenyatta, right? Padmore, 
there's all central, right? And we're looking at the way that people are connecting across borders, across language, right? Across the ocean, right? In a way that provided the basis for resistance to be rooted in a different sense of belonging that exploded the idea of nation and sort of nullified the meaning of Britain as the center. Right. Yeah. Ooh, I'm getting excited. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, this <laughs> is different. This is, of course, different than some of the politics of the League of Color People or even Edward Scobie's kind of politicking around uh, right. a, a British sort of community, right? Mm-hmm. That was meant to be. Um, that that is really sort of lovely in an egalitarian, equal sense but did not reflect the reality that people were experiencing, right? Mm-hmm. So you have Checkers magazine, right? Mm-hmm. Which is meant to evoke the, the places on a checkerboard, right? Black and white, right? The alternating colors of a checkerboard, <laughs> right? The League of Colored People on the Jamaican Harold Moody, they published something called The Keys, like a piano, right? Ebony and Ivory Keys on a piano, <laughs> playing a beautiful tune together, right? In the name of being British, right? So these are different ideas about right. the extent of racialism in Britain, right? right. And, it's pos- <laughs> and its ability to be targeted and um, assailed, but also it's perhaps a, a, a notion about its severity or lack thereof from certain personalities, right? So, so these are these are debates that are happening within the context of already a class of figures from the Caribbean and Africa who are able to arrive in Britain at that time. And we see that it's played out in these very, um, well, it's really sort of the same metaphor, this black and white, both for the keys <laughs> and for the checkerboard. But, right. but that, that points to a different sense a different notion, right, which actually draws quite closely on some of the British cultural, um, mm-hmm. it draws, it draws significantly on British cultural norms in the sense that there is a natural goodwill among people mm-hmm. and that the goodwill of Britons might be extended to non-white people. Mm. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that th- that type of um, politics. I'm not sure if we should call it like assimilationist or pragmatic politics, but it definitely comes into stark contrast in the next chapter. Um, when the Caribbean students enter um, and you call them, uh, you refer to them as existentialists in exile. Um, and you uh, look at the West Indian student um, union cohort of Stuart Hall and others. So can you tell us more about uh, what they brought to the mix? Sure, sure. Well, they're, they're such an interesting group, right? Because th- they were exiled because post-secondary, well, tertiary education was not yet available at least in a, on a widespread basis in the Anglophone Caribbean, right? It's not until 1948, really, that the university college 
of the West Indies is founded and it is a satellite campus of the University of London, right? Later in the beginning of the 1960s, it technically becomes the University of the West Indies and it becomes autonomous, right? But so there's already not a lot of places within the region of the Caribbean to go to after you've completed secondary school, right? So they're almost exiled by force of pursuing higher education, right? Their unique positions in British universities also meant that these students had been successful, right? Basically in competition against their peers from across the region, right? But then they also entered into spaces like Oxford, Cambridge, LSE, and the like, right? With their own cultures and their own heritages, right? That rendered them, these Caribbean and African students, as not always welcome interlocutors, right? At the same time, these students could think seriously about the ways that Britons viewed and understood empire, race, nation, and belonging, right? So you have these spaces, the halls of ancient universities, in which bright students from the so-called dark colonies, right, encountered the bright white students from the metropole. And it is these students from the tropics, as they often were referred to, right? The tropical students were bewildered then by the paucity of perspectives on who belonged where and why. And because they were budding intellectuals, this engendered intellectual rebuttals from people like Hall, from Kenneth Ramchin and others, right? Patricia Madhu and the Jamaican uh, Mervyn Morris, who rejected some of the staid intellectual status quo and sought to hold British culture, its universities and its attitudes to account, right? Why I think about this existentialist question is because I was working through these uh, accounts from students And I was trying to, I kept feeling as if the question of who exactly am I was recurring among them, right? Uh, There's a great example that that I use in the book from Mervyn Morris, who was playing tennis. And he was, uh, there was going to be a combined Oxford and Cambridge tennis team that was Uh, organized by the Lawn Tennis Association of the UK that was going to come and play, come to the United States and play a combined Harvard and Yale team, right? Because this is the way that these institutions have long worked, right? So the idea would be Oxford and Cambridge are going to play against Harvard and Yale and combined tennis teams. Well, Morris was already playing tennis and suddenly was removed right, from the roster of student athletes who was going to travel and play, right? And for him, in the aftermath of that, there could only be one reason why he was not selected to represent them, right? And that was on a fundamental level, right, questioning exactly who he was and everything he thought he knew about himself in this context. Right. Yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that that the dissonance, uh, yeah, just kind of like marks, uh, well, it's, it's a pre, it's a prelude to the, to the next moment that uh, the book takes on, which is, um, 
this moment when white racial terror and black resistance to anti-immigrant and anti-black violence in the summer of 1958 um, produces the Notting Hill riots. And it's a moment, it's a period that amplifies the organizational basis of radical intellectualism that's kind of laid out and teased out in the previous chapters. So um, what is your take on how this a pivotal moment reshapes the radicalisms that you're describing um, in the previous uh, chapters. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, well, the corporeal ramifications of public violence really mm-hmm. had a profound impact on efforts to resist racist attitudes after 1958, after Notting Hill, right? Because white resentment to migration expressed itself in that summer in bodily harm and also damage to property. The visceral potentiality of anti-Black racism could not be ignored any longer or obscured, right? So what you have is a sort of, I don't want to say media sanction, but certainly there was the media response to the violence was actually very equal. (laughs) Right. In all of the cases that we're thinking about. Right. It's in a white initiated race riot that suddenly the activity, often the defense of black people and black communities by black people is seen as being equal in its violent nature to that of the white aggressors. Right. This then I believe was incredibly influential in radicalizing members of West Indian communities to, in effect, begin to make claims over space in Britain, right? So they sought not only to belong and to inculcate themselves and to survive in places like Birmingham or Cardiff or London, but also to make claims over spaces as their own, right? Because they looked at Notting Hill, which is a community, right? It's in the West of London that actually becomes the place of settlement for significant numbers of people after the war from the Caribbean and Africa and South Asia, because it is a dilapidated neighborhood at the time. And it's, it's one of the areas that is more likely, right? To be home to landlords, who are willing to to let rooms to people no matter their race, right? But after this violence, people begin then to act in what I refer to as making claims that reflect micro-sovereignties, right? Like Black-owned businesses. So you have something like the Calypso Club. There's the Mangrove Restaurant. There's the El Rio Cafe. Right. A number of them founded by a Trinidadian named Frank Critchlow, right? These were places that were, they were there for people to party, right? They were there for revelry, but they also were kind of spaces for political planning and resistance, right? There was one business that was nicknamed the Fortress. And during the Notting Hill riots, people stayed in that business. They, they congregated there during the daytime, with the window shades closed and then emerged at night right, by the dozen, right? And they were carrying with them, right, bicycle chains, cricket bats, 
knuckle dusters, right? That's, and that's in the U.S. We would call those brass knuckles, right? They would bring them into skirmishes with the teddy boys, right? The white disaffected youth that they knew would show up night after night, right? This kind of intimate and brutal nature of these events, right, allowed people to think um, specifically about the potential for staking a claim over space. And it becomes even clearer when you start to read some of the news reports and you see accounts of where people had arrived from during the riots, right? These are... These are efforts, pardon me, these are instances, it's not only people in Notting Hill are participating. In fact, we're talking about uh, white youths who are showing up from around London, but also from places like Essex outside of London, right? And you see that you have black and brown folks arriving from places like Stepney, which is in East London, Tottenham, which is in the North, and Brixton, which is in the South, all showing up in the West, waiting for the sun to fall. Hmm? And, um, yeah, and, yeah, I think that one of the things I took from this was also, yeah, just the ways that the media becomes so radicalizing. Um, and speaking of just the production of space, um, I think uh, in your work it comes across, we're talking about, like, uh, micro-sovereignty is, is thinking about physical space, but then there's also taking up space in like media and taking up space in uh, this uh, black journalistic world that kind of emerges and really flowers um, after the Notting Hill riots. So can you, yeah, perhaps uh, talk about that uh, uh, black journalistic world and the ways that um, it asserted a rejection of kind of like civil rights movements or movements that were rooted in accessing um, British society and instead actually engendered a more radical political consciousness. So, yeah, what was this new consciousness? What did it consist of and how did West Indians organize around it? Yeah, well, so much of this is uh, I in my work attributed to the Trinidadian Claudia Jones. And Claudia Jones was someone I encountered archivally first at the Schomburg, right? And I was looking at correspondences that she was having with uh, with Paul Robeson and trying to think about her organizing in the U.S. She was born in Trinidad and lived as a youth and really as a young woman in in New York and was a member of the U.S. Uh, or the, the Communist Party of the United States before her activism made her a target right of the federal government and she was incarcerated for some time here and later released because she had tuberculosis right and deported right that was the sort of the deal to end her sentence because she was born in trinidad she was a citizen of the united kingdom and colonies which meant that after deportation she could elect to go to Britain rather than back to the Caribbean. She went to Britain and continued to organize there. And something that Jones did, which is incredibly important to thinking about these radical revolutionary forms, was in the aftermath of the riots, right? The ongoing 
Caribbean carnival that she spearheaded in London, right? It still happens today. They call it the Notting Hill Carnival today, right? But it had its origins actually not in Notting Hill. It had its origins um, in St. Pancras Town Hall. So if you know anything about the geography of London, St. Pancras is a now, it's a huge uh, rail station, right? It's actually where you can take international rail, right? And, and uh, it is around the corner from the British Library. Right. So this is for everybody who wants to do research in London, just so mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. sort of where these places are. There are we a lot of tube the lines. There are a lot of tube lines that go there. It's in a very busy area, right? Mm -hmm. But the reason why initially the carnival was held in the town hall, in St. Pancras Town Hall, was that Jones held the carnival to be simultaneous with the carnival in Trinidad, which is arranged around the Lenten calendar. So it's typically in February, right? It, it, in the latest years, it would be in er, very early March, but it's typically in February. And you know, in London, it's quite cold and not very beautiful in February. So they didn't have the carnival outside. Instead, they had it indoors so that it was staying as true, right, to its original incarnation, right, in, in their new home in London. Right. And something that happened in early conferences, I believe it was the very first carnival. Jones made the pamphlet, the souvenir pamphlet, had this very important caption. Right. And it was part of the keynote that she gave at the carnival. And Jones said, a people's art is the genesis of their freedom. This was this statement right, allowed people to think about remaining connected right, to the Caribbean, but also allowed people from different parts of the Caribbean to think about themselves collectively. Right? What Jones and her paper, the West Indian Gazette, did, right, was to inform, to build, right, and expand upon a kind of Caribbean political consciousness, right, that paid tribute to the history, right, the shared history of dispossession, right, of enslavement, right, among people from different places, right, in a way to suggest clearly that this had not disempowered nor neutered their creative or agentive potential, right? That the traditional Westminster styles of governance and action, right, could be rejected for those that rooted themselves in traditions, cultures, and knowledges of the Caribbean that really existed outside of the realms of power, right? It was carnival where black and brown people had autonomy, they had agency, they had sovereignty, right? And for Jones, it was so critical that those expressions reflected their Trinidadian origins, right? She's someone who by this time had been a veteran of all different manner of social justice 
class-based movements, right? Common turn mobilization. She had been to Moscow just like some of her predecessors, right? She had been to Beijing, right? After the uh, revolution in China, right? She had long been frustrated by the diminishing of what among you know international communists was referred to as the Negro question, right? And she said, actually, we, we won't think about this as the Negro question. The assumption, right, is the centrality of the experiences of people from the Caribbean and Africa in a way that allows us to create something, right, that is a progression away from other movements, but also a revolutionary perspective grounded in the unique quality and histories of Africans and diasporic Africans. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the um, yeah, just uh, it's just fascinating to hear about the temporal synergy she she kind of creates across space. Yeah, um, and the Gazette, the get the the Gazette was wonderful. Mm-hmm. There was always this this recurring column that was called "Know Your History," right? Yeah, <laughs> and and it was never one. It wasn't African American history. It wasn't Jamaican history. Right? It wasn't Nigerian history. It was figures from different places, but yeah. there was a notion that this history belonged to everyone who was the audience of the Gazette. Right. And um, yeah, I'll just I'll just repeat that that quote that you gave us: "The people's art is the genesis of their freedom." Um, and I think that bridging the kind of the cultural dimensions of uh, Claudia Junta's work with the journalistic dimensions um, is definitely one of the more interesting parts of this chapter as well. Um, And the production of the diasporic artist activists, um, as you've named them, um, is, it's just, yeah, generative. Um, So, yeah, so the early 1960s, this this kind of moment of blossoming kind of like encounters the early 1960s, um, where seismic global changes such as the end of West Indian Federation, uh, decolonization, uh, the passage of the 1962 British immigration law, the clampdown of Caribbean black power expressed through the Jamaica Labor Party's banning of Rodney from Jamaica, um, and so on, all of this political repression that's happening globally uh, leads to the reconfiguration and growth, again, of Black radicalism in Britain through a number of vehicles. So can you tell us about this moment, uh, the vehicles that um, kept radicalism afloat? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because decolonization was understood as a sea change, right? right. Mm-hmm. Enormous. But my work also wants to point out how there are radical vanguardists of various movements who continued during the time of decolonization to move away from what was deemed acceptable or inevitable, right? That there would be, a that the British would leave, the French would leave, the Belgians would leave, and then there'd be the reproduction of the political structures that they left, right? So independence was viewed as a major step towards actualization of or of the self-determination of a number of people, right, of the global South. But if we just look at the example of Walter Rodney's banning, right, by uh, the JLP, we can see autonomy and sovereignty in Jamaica did not necessarily mean that ideas that threatened and undermined and held to account 
the old colonial regimes, right, were in any way more welcome after decolonization, right? And in fact, the transatlantic response to Rodney's banning, right, reflected a critical intellectual activist dynamic that found independence really sorely lacking, right, in the way that it omitted black power, Marxism, Marxism, Marxisms, pardon me, and a host of other politics that we might say have come from below, right? The kind of grassroots mobilizations of people who even in the 1960s and 70s are still trying to make sure they have enough to eat, right? The the Universal Colored People's Association, UCPA, right, operating in Britain in particular is an example that I raise in the book because they vehemently attacked the status quo of British and the sort of post-colonial British imperial structure, the Commonwealth, right? They, They rejected these political formations, right? They noted that, for instance, the in Rhodesia, for right, Ian Smith, right, and his passing of the Universal Declaration of Independence, right, the UDI, right, the whole purpose of Smith's notion of doing this was to uh, ensure the sovereignty and of Rhodesia as an independent state under white minority rule. Right. And UCPA said, well, there should be a bigger outcry about this. This is not the way that this should work. Right. This is not fair. This is not correct. Right. And they actually, in an incisive way, they note that Smith's even inkling of an idea to formalize an independent post-colonial white minority rule state in Africa right? While the formal processes of decolonization for Jamaica, Barbados, and other Caribbean territories was really unthinkable without being framed in the Westminster style and with significant oversight from the colonial office showed the racist foundation for Commonwealth, right? They actually used this terminology, which I think is wonderful, right? They refer to Anglo-Saxonism, as a problem, right? Now we're getting into very radical ideas, right? Right. We're getting into what what British identities might be scaffolded upon, right? The sort of Anglo-Saxon supremacy, right? And UCPA is saying, well, look at the places where Anglo-Saxonism rules, right? The former settler colonies, the U.S., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, right? Apartheid South Africa, Rhodesia, right? British East Africa, Kenya, right? They're saying these are the pl- these are not good examples, actually, folks. These are not good examples of governance. This is not the path that anyone coming from that favored term, the tropical colonies, might want in their future, right? So UCPA is sort of. Uh, they argued against the history of Anglo-Saxonism, but also its future expression in the form of Commonwealth. And that just made them even more incisively radical in a way that I think we just can't ignore. We have to really think about because it, it, it pays um, significant attention to the sort of unseen. Mm-hmm. 
well, let's pull that thread forward. Um, and let's discuss the final chapter of the book, which is one of my favorites. Um, and it represents the culmination in a way of the radical political consciousness that's developed in the previous chapters. Um, and uh, really thinking about uh, the proliferation of black institutions, black art, black publishing, um, the creation of black spaces. Um, all of these kind of like amount to articulations of what you refer to as black post-nationalism. Tell us about this Black post-nationalism and how and why it was revolutionary. Sure. Thank you so much. This chapter really is trying to reflect the dynamism of the late 60s, right? Mm -hmm. And the possibilities people could imagine when citizenship and its limits were becoming clearer and clearer to them, Mm -hmm. right? Citizenship to Britain, right? The former hegemon, right? But also citizenship in these new spaces, right, in these newly independent spaces. For that reason, the Caribbean artist movement, CAM, is so critically important because they were thinking and working toward expressing and involving radical consciousness that engaged with nodes in the, in the Caribbean, in Africa, and in Britain for the common purpose, really, of producing scholarship and art, but also through understanding the ways that that art reflected revolutionary politics, Mm -hmm. right? So you have Edward Brathwaite, right? Kamau Brathwaite, who is one of the leaders or one of the vanguard members of CAM, who from its very beginning says, okay, how can we get involved with the widest number of people that we want to get involved with? Right. And Andrew Salky is part of the West Indian Student Center and Students Union. Right. And John LaRose is there. And what they notice is that the West Indian Student Center is very close to a place called the Unity House, which is where Africans meet. So Brathwaite says, well, this is exactly what we need to do is flyer and publicize right at the West Indian Student Center. And the Unity House is there and we need to bring the Africans in. Right. This was someone who had been in Ghana teaching for, I think, eight or nine years before he arrived in Britain. Right. To complete his uh, history Ph.D. Right. So he was already intimately aware of and engaged with the idea that we're the land of your birth or the the nation on your passport was the only way you could identify. Right. He, he knew that that was not true. Mm-hmm. And it was through CAM that the sort of continued focus on thinking collectively had its expression in a host of artistic forms, right? And I would say that they had that in common with the Racial Adjustment Action Society, right? The group of Michael X, right? Ross. Also called Ross. That's right, right? <laughs> which is just a wonderful name as, as sort of uh, creative and... Um, Lovely, cunning and lovely, right? <laughs> right. A Ross, little tongue in cheek. A little tongue in cheek, right? <laughs> Ross was. They were talking about having black radical theater, right, on the premises of a cultural center that they wanted to establish, right. They also wanted to have cooking classes, right, so people could learn to cook different African and Caribbean cuisines. They wanted to have lessons in Swahili and Arabic, right? 
They wanted to have African history courses taught by African historians. Mm-hmm. Right? Cam continued to think about how they could make connections across geographies, right? And in particular, they actually established what you might think of as a satellite network in Jamaica for some time, right? There was a Cam Jamaica affiliate, right? Mm-hmm. And the sociologist Orlando Patterson, who at first had been with the organizers of CAM in London, I think he was lecturing at SOAS, potentially at that time, or lecturing at LSE, then returned to Jamaica to uh, take up a position at UWE in Mona, outside of Kingston. And he was sort of one of the point people of the CAM Jamaica affiliate, right? Mm -hmm. So the importance of spreading the newsletters, right, and publicizing the publications, right, and other material that CAM and its members were producing in London or across England or across United Kingdom, really, back to places like Jamaica, like Trinidad, like Dominica, like St. Lucia, right? There are all these records of the orders being placed to get this material available back to people in the Caribbean meant that their time in Britain did not estrange them wholly from where they were originally from, right? right? You have figures like the Jamaican Marina Maxwell, who in a very direct line carried on much of Jones's notion of a people's art being the genesis of their freedom, mm. right? right? We're talking about folks who were thinking beyond what their citizenship provided them because they mm. found their citizenship to nevertheless be insufficient in addressing their actual freedom and liberation. Right. 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 And they were involved in these kinds of critical intellectual exercises. Right. You have Ross and you have the Black House, right, which is a squat right? It, they have occupied a space, right? And it's very much in a space like that, that they are utilizing their own kind of sovereignty, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Michael de Freitas, who later becomes known as Michael X, right? The leader of Ross is this fascinating Trinidadian figure, mm-hmm. right? Who is able to raise a lot of funds right in support of this project (laughs) right right and who is outspoken in a brash intense manner right that is rejecting undermining and targeting directly the notion that britain and brit and british and the British rule of law are the only ways to understand mm-hmm. civility, jurisprudence, right? And what's okay and what's not, right? They create their own belonging. Mm. Indeed. Um, well, Dr. Cantres, you cannot leave us in suspense. So <laughs> what, what happened to this um Black post-nationalism, all these kind of like articulations, these ideas, these new um, ways of belonging that uh, Black activists are claiming. 
um, what happens to it in the post-1960s period? And are there any contemporary legacies of it today? Yeah, there, well, there are ways in which I think there was a, a Nigerian activist and he was a playwright. He was a host of things, right? His name was Obi Egbuna. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote something, I want to say it was in 1973, called The ABCs of, Pla- of Black Power Thought. And, and in that work, he traces a genealogy, different stages of the development of Black Power Thought. And he says that he's living in the contemporary one. And his vision for the contemporary one was to bring Pan-Africanism up to date, mm-hmm. right? So I think in the 1970s in particular, you begin to continue to see the ways in which Pan-Africanist organizing, right, among independent states, right, spaces, uh, nation states that are autonomous, right, they have sovereignty, but yet there is this interaction and engagement among people across the Caribbean, across South Asia, across the African continent, outside of the strict confines of the sort of nation-state relationships, right? So there's a Pan-African Congress in Dar es Salaam, right, Mm -hmm. in 1975, and there are members there, there are uh, attendees of of that conference from the British Black Panthers, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? So you have these kinds of groups in the 70s and the 80s, Right. You have the Black Liberation Front, right, in the 70s and 80s that were challenging the limits of their national citizenships. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. They were looking towards broader and more incisive kinds of politics. You have the Trinidadian Althea Jones LeCoint. Right. You have the British born Zainab Abbas. Right. You have folks like Darkus Howe, Tony Suarez, Ansel Wong who were mobilizing support for black people in Britain, but also in revolutionary societies on the continent and in the Caribbean, yes. right? Mm-hmm. People know about the Mangrove Nine, right? There was the, mm-hmm. uh, the um, there was a, it wasn't a documentary. There is a documentary about it, but there was a, a, a feature, series, a, a, yeah. a small act feature, right, <laughs> about it, right? Mm-hmm. Althea jones Coint who had a sister in Trinidad who was involved in black power organizing in the, in the black power movement in Trinidad in 1970, right? Like, so we, we see that these are con- a militant form of black power activism did not rely on acquiescing really to British uh, hegemony, right? So you have people who are traversing different routes and continue to have been routed or rooted rather in different places, right? Whether Trinidad, Egypt, the Sudan, Libya, Nigeria, right, Jamaica, just naming places where a number of these folks were from, right? Going to the Pan-African Congress, right, in Tanzania, right? We're seeing that British citizenship in the 70s and 80s remaining woefully inadequate in terms of recourse to the issues that matter to black radicals, right? There are a host of people that we could look at and think about, right? Um, and I think that that continues, right? What did we see last summer, right? We saw BLM, right? We saw Black Lives Matter activism in Bristol tearing down the statue of Edward Colston, right? right? And that was in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, right? These places are far apart, right? It wasn't about George Floyd's position necessarily as an American that made that matter. 
four black youths in Bristol that day. Mm-hmm. So I think it's right up to date. I think it's continuing. And I think we see in exchanges, right, in terms of looking through the way in which different generations of uh, black people in Britain and the United States, right, are reacting to the social realities in the societies from which they may have arrived at at different stages, right? We're, we're talking really now, the sort of Windrush generation, right, our elders, right? right? There are multiple generations of their descendants who would have been born in Britain at this point, right? So we have to kind of also consider the fact that British citizenship would have meant something different, likely, right, to a Royal Air Force volunteer, right, from Jamaica in the Second World War that it might mean to their grandchild, right, today. Indeed, yeah, I would love to think uh, more intergenerationally kind of on that theme, but I have actually one more question for you before we go, Um, and that is, um, would you like to share with our listeners what you are working on now? Actually, some of the things that we talked about in your answer to the last question <laughs> might yeah. also be an excellent, an excellent book to write, but um, we would love to hear about what you're, what you're working on now. Sure. Yeah, I'm working on similar things as <laughs> I'm sort of building excellent. on my, my work sort of um, the book. Black and Britain sort of really ends around 1971 in the Immigration Act, which is another kind of uh, highly restrictive measure, which in effect makes it so that really people who can show very direct and clear Anglo um, ancestry, right, are are the people who are most easily uh, admitted as immigrants into Britain, right? Like, so it's really kind of oriented to spur some immigration from places like Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, right? Among the Anglo populations there, right? We haven't even talked, right, about uh, Maori people or the Aboriginal realities in a place like Australia, right, given uh, UCPA, for instance, their critique of Anglo-Saxonism, right? Sort of 1971 is a great example, the Immigration Act, right? So moving beyond that, I'm thinking uh, a lot now on a new project, which is dealing with non-state actors, as I call them, right? So I want to think about the post-independence period in uh, the Black Atlantic. And I'm looking at places like Jamaica, Trinidad, Guyana, and Nigeria, right? And I'm thinking about people like Rodney, right? And the Working People's Alliance, right? The WPA, also uh, the incredibly important Guyanese uh scholar right she will she always says that she's not an academic but <laughs> andaye yes right? and how did i know <laughs> yeah she, she will say she's not an academic and academics we have our own ways that's sort of like sort of but thinking about um how they were and continue to wrestle with uh the post-colonial realities in society like guyana thinking about the black power movement in trinidad right looking at michael X again, right? Because he actually returns to Trinidad after being in Britain. 
uh, I don't want to give it away. Some people may know the story, but he flees yeah. Britain. Let's say he, he actually flees Britain, looking at uh, different people in Jamaica, some of um, the organizers of Rastafarian compounds, right, and mobilizations, people like Claudius Henry and Ross Historian. So I'm thinking, I'm, I'm working on thinking about the post-colonial Black Atlantic, right, and how after decolonization, you still have movements, right? Like the British Black Panthers, the Black Liberation Front, and others, right? Who, rather than, I think there's a tendency sometimes to look at movements like this through rose-colored lenses, right? Right? And what I want to do is not do that and to suggest we can appreciate and understand the radical components of these movements, but also we would do that in a better way through recognizing exactly how sovereignty, survival, and thriving might also have existed among these people, right? right? I really want to uncover and investigate further the unseen, right? the targeted, and, and the murdered, right? I, I want to think about acting against the state as a form of, as a further expression of some of the post-nationalist organizing and epistemology, right? Because it's also about creating a system of thought and creating a certain kind of knowledge, right? Which eschews the old colonial regime, right? Which does not wholly dismiss it, right? Because it has to reckon with it, right? But it recognizes it as useless, right? Or problematic or continuing to be exploitative, right? So this work is about uncovering how even after decolonization, right? Non-state actors push toward different visions of solidarity and freedom. Wow. Um, I am have the biggest smile on my face right now because I cannot wait until that book um, is also uh, published and out in the world with us. Um, I hope that we can get you back on the show to discuss uh, that one as well, because uh, yes, we're sorely in need of it. And like I said, that would can't, be great. Leave, can't leave us in suspense. So <laughs> that would be great. Um, Dr. Cantrez, I want to thank you for being on the show today and for speaking with us about Blackening Britain, Caribbean radicalism from Windrush to decolonization. Thank you so much, Amanda.